Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. We're all familiar with that old adage, don't judge a book by its cover. But does the same apply to the albums of our favourite music? How do you create an iconic image? The Beatles strutting across Abbey Road, or maybe light refracting through a prism against an all-black background? And how important is that image in ensuring the music on the disc reaches as many ears as possible? This week, we meet the director behind a new documentary, which tells the story of the legendary design studio Hypnosis. Hear from the photographer responsible for a defining album cover of the early 2000s and ask an art director all about the artwork design process in the, take a deep breath, age of streaming. So do stay tuned. It's not what's on the inside that counts this week on Monocle on Culture. First up, the British design firm Hypnosis rose to prominence in the 1970s for their iconic album artwork. Led by Stormer Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell, a.k.a. Poe, their photography-orientated, often highly theatrical or surrealist designs furnished the music of Pink Floyd, Genesis, Wings and many more. A new documentary, Squaring the Circle, the story of hypnosis, chronicles the genius of Storm and Poe's creative partnership and how, over time, their relationship entered rocky waters. But to set the scene, let's first hear a clip here of Poe talking about the heydays of hypnosis and the creation of a certain Pink Floyd album cover in 1975. People get burned in this business all the time and Storm said, why don't we set a man on fire? He's being burned. And uh, this is in the days before computer, so there was no fakery here. The only way to set a man on fire and make it look for real was to set him on fire. We went to a place called Stunts Unlimited. Who wants to be on a record cover when we could be in Towering Inferno, they said. You know, like we were a couple of hippies who'd like, you know, who? Pink Floyd, what? But there was one guy, Ronnie Rondell, and he said to me, I understand exactly what you want to do, and what you want to do is probably one of the most dangerous fire stunts you can do because you're standing still and fire moves. And now to the filmmaker behind that documentary, Anton Corbin. The perfect fit for this story, in fact. Corbin is the creative director behind the visual output of Depeche Mode and U2, to name but two. When I caught up with him ahead of the film's release, I began by asking how strongly the spirit of adventure of those early hypnosis days came across in his interviews. I think it came across both in the interviews with the artist as with uh, Aubrey Poe, or Poe as he's called. Yeah, I think they were so determined to belong at the time in the 60s, whatever was happening, they just made it work, you know, and um, you could probably throw anything at them and they would, would make it work. I got the feeling it comes from that angle rather than from a studying arts or something. They just wanted to be part of something and they learned very well and quickly and they ended up creating some amazing sleeves. Yeah, the, the work obviously bestrides a decade and a half or 20 years or so of fantastic music. Just personally, Anton, what was the first hypnosis sleeve that you remember? Mm, I keep, keep thinking it's the Adam Hart mother one. The cow. The cow. I'm not sure now what I saw first, <laughs> but it was a sleeve I really love, and I love the album too. So 
is so much part of it, of course, how you remember something. Yeah, I mean, I bought Dark Side of the Moon on the strength. It, it came out before I was born. Not that long, sadly, before I was born. But I bought that album off the back of finding that such a bewitchingly strange, straight-laced album cover for an album with such a lot of passion on it. Do you listen to albums differently with the artwork in your hands, especially probably in the LP, the LP size artwork? Is, is it a different listening experience to have something tactile in your hands, to flip over, to look at the credits and to marvel in that artwork? It definitely was. I think album sleeves now have a, not the same importance and, and meaning as they used to have. But when I grew up, yeah, absolutely. It was fantastic to have an album, you know, and, and it's not something you bought every week. You saved up for it and went to the record store. I mean, we all know the story how that used to go. And you, you listen to a few songs in the record store and then you buy it. And then at home, you, you look through everything again. Yeah, it was a source of information and excitement. And you very much connected it to the music. Now that vinyl makes a comeback of sorts, which is great because people, I think they like to have a product in their hand, have, a, have, have something beautiful in their hand. Even if they don't have a record player, then they have a, a code on the record and they download it. So they download it and they have the album. But, you know, any information about the record now you have on Google before you buy it, it's so easy to find. And that was, of course, very different then. The record sleeve is a source of information. Yeah, there's something of a sacrament and a ritual to that buying of the records, saving up your pocket money or the money from your first job that you probably didn't like and bringing it home. Noel Gallagher talks eloquently and amusingly, as he often does, but particularly about that sacrament of studying the album sleeves on the number 50 bus somewhere in Manchester in the in the late 70s, I presume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, it's so different if you have to save up for something and buy it than to press a button on your on your laptop to get the music. I think that it means more to you if you have to save up for it. Yeah. And you've got such wonderful array of interviewees and interview subjects in Squaring the Circle, Anton. I mean, you've really obviously gone straight to the, the mother load with some of your wonderful talking heads straight to the bands themselves that featured. It's perhaps easier sometimes for musicians, certainly of that fame and fortune i suppose as well to sort of talk about the artwork maybe even the writing of the songs which sometimes is disputed especially especially with one particular band featured pink floyd i suppose and, and some of the, the politics within the band but everyone could happily congress around the idea that the covers were fantastic was that the was that the feeling you got absolutely i think there was a real love for hypnosis and the work they did whether it was for the people and the sleeves or just for the sleeves but they all all the artists gave us time to interview them. And I think that's uh, that was a real a way of honoring hypnosis, I think. And quite rightly so. You know, they did incredible things for these people. And they don't feel that anybody stepped on their toes. But also like Noel Gallagher, who was more a, a much younger generation. But it was nice to hear his take on it, on album sleeves and the meaning of, of records. And Peter Seville, a designer I like very much and who I've worked with, and a few other people that are just outside the bands that they worked with. I just wanted to get other voices in there. Poe, you mentioned in an earlier answer, Anton, Aubrey Powell, obviously one of the pair of leading lights with Storm Thorgerson of Hypnosis. He's a fantastic, generous interviewee, talks the viewer through so many parts of the 
politics of it, the art direction, but he sort of falls into it by accident. And he just says, I was handed a camera right in the early days and I was told I'd be the photographer and he'd never really taken a photograph before. And Storm just says, point, shoot, reload, repeat. And he just... And he just learned how to do it sort of under some fairly strict instruction from Storm Thorgerson. I felt that you, as a fantastic photographer, might well have been wincing your way through that anecdote. Is uh, is Poe hiding his light under a bushel? Is he being falsely modest at the ease with which he took up photography? And I wonder what you, th- you thought of that particular quote. I thought that was really interesting, but it also shows you the work balance between the two. I think Storm was the, the man of ideas and uh, no fear. Poe was just the guy who make it, made it happen. And some people say he was a bit of a gangster, but, but somebody who would not always play by the rules and get, get his way. And uh, I think that was probably needed in those days. He obviously has developed as a photographer, you know, um, but that that is the difference, I think, between myself and them, is that I am a photographer first, and if I design something, that's secondary. I, I don't advertise myself as a designer so much, but more as a photographer, whereas they advertise themselves as designers. And if the idea involves photography, great. If the idea doesn't involve photography, great too. They make it happen. Paul McCartney, he called me up and he said, listen, man, I've seen this statue that I want to buy at Christie's. Do you think you'd pop down there and get it? Because I want to put it somewhere really special. I said, where? He said, on Everest. I suppose we must have had a meeting and said, oh, wow, it should be at the top of a Swiss mountain. You know, there's a lot of that in those days. So we took a helicopter up, which could only land on the edge like this. We had to jump off, take this 70-pound statue, and there I am, stuck on an area about the size of an average person's sitting room, with a 10,000-foot drop all round me, and I hate heights. I'm completely have a phobia about heights. And I was stuck up there for about six hours. Poe Powell in, in the film is, as I say, such a generous and heartfelt well history lesson into, into hypnosis and how he works with Storm. And we learn of Storm's demise. I mean, that's well known. But there's a little bit of a parallel there between Sid Barrett turning up at Abbey Road while Pink Floyd were cutting Wish You Were Here and some of Poe's reminiscences of Storm and, and, and his ability to kind of creatively kind of go off the rails. Was that something that I've interpreted slightly blindly out of your film? Or did, did you see a little bit of a... Yeah, you might be right. But then again, I, I never met either of them. So uh, it, it's possible. And the editor to Andrew Hume, we, we fought hard to give Storm a place in the film because he was not around. And I really wanted him to be as important as Poe. And, and Poe carries the whole film. His um, storytelling is great, and his his uh, memory is fantastic. So it's really important for me that that storm was part of the whole story. So that's what I looked at. And I didn't look so much as uh, the comparison to Sid Barrett, but more that about the love affair mm-hmm. of Storm and Poe and how that went all wrong, and then it, it, forcing towards the end, it came back again. Yeah. No, it's a very tender moment in the film when uh, Poe is reminiscing about Storm and their their sad falling out when they became kind of film and promo producers, I suppose. Noel Gallagher talks about this when his daughter doesn't know what artwork is on an album that his her father's made because it's the 
little tile that you see on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever it is. What's your prognosis for the health of album art in 2023? Because things seem to get smaller. I bought an iPad so I could look at things bigger as I play them digitally, but most people wouldn't do that. Where, what's, uh, what's the health check, I wonder, on artwork in the 21st century? I think that uh, the importance has faded of album sleeve. So it's something extra. It Not much meaning apart from the band or the, the singer or whatever. Um, wanting to create something to go with the music. And of course, it's it's the canvas of 12-inch square or 12 by 24-inch. I mean, you have a gatefold. It's wonderful. You know? And and I, I'm very happy that with Depeche Mode, we managed to release everything on vinyl and have gatefolds. For me, it's part of a record, you know, the, the, the sleeve. But I think that for young people, for starters, they probably have no record players. So it's a specific group of people that are young and love vinyl. It's, it's like a, a fetish almost, I guess. I don't think uh, there's a lot of future in it. It's a niche, a niche thing, yeah. Anton, thank you so much for talking us through Squaring the Circle and your wonderful take on hypnosis and talking us around around the houses a little bit as well because it's such a rich vein of creative energy that bursts off the screen. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Now, how do you know when you have the shot that will transform your image into a timeless memento of that collection of songs? Well, Marcus Klinko has an idea. On top of working for editorial and brands like Vogue and L'Oreal Paris, the photographer has shot album covers for, among others, David Bowie and Mary J. Blige. But here he tells us about shooting one very special album cover in the early 2000s for another star. All the ladies, if you feel me, help me sing it out. On the actual shoot for Dangerous in Love, Beyonce had requested, she was inspired by an image that I've taken for a major advertising campaign that was running at the time in all the magazines for Diamond.com. And it was Letitia Costa, the French supermodel and actor, she was laying in a spider web. It was diamond studded and sort of a very dramatic blue image. And Beyonce had seen it and she, she referred to it and she said, if we could just do something like that, but smaller. And as she walked into the studio and I looked at the styling elements, I noticed that they had a, a top that was made out of these diamond strings. And I, I showed it to Beyonce and I said, I think that's what you were talking about. That's perfect. And she said, yeah, I know, but we have only these skirts. And I feel it's going to look very red carpet-like. And so she wasn't really keen to, to go there. And I said, no, nah, I don't see that with skirts. I see that with, with denim. It'll look really great. The denim with the, with the diamonds, that will be a very strong look for you. And she said, yeah, I agree, but we don't have any denim. We didn't bring any. So I just basically said to her, you know what? You might fit mine. And if, if you want... I probably have another pair. I can take. I can take these off and give them to you, and so we did. And uh, you know, that's my my joke is I must have Beyonce's butt because they fit her perfectly. And so now, twenty years later, I'm keep I keep getting offers from crazy art collectors that want to buy not only the Beyonce print but also the jeans and put them in some sort of a plexiglass, whatever. I haven't entertained any of these offers, even though they were substantial, because it's kind of silly, but. Who knows, you know, never say never.
I'm looking for a timeless, iconic moment that is not going to fade away after a few months. I'm not looking to do trendy photos. I've never followed the trends in photography. You know, when you look at Italian Vogue, that's a great example. They're a wonderful magazine. And if you're a fashionista, you're going to absolutely have, you know, goosebumps every time you see the new, the latest cover. But when you look back at it, you know, 10 years later, it doesn't really have the same staying power as do album covers. I remember when I was a kid in the 70s, those famous, famous album covers, Michael Jackson and Led Zeppelin and all that. And there's definitely no fashion magazine cover that has any sort of even close of that staying power. So I would say I'm therefore not really looking to create the most fashionable moment. I'm trying to freeze perfection in time and, you know, hold up a mirror to society, if you want to sort of say that, where I reflect back what's really going on in our, in our culture is that there's sort of a deification of celebrity. We are worshipping celebrity. And I think these, similar to the world of the Greek gods and goddesses, I think these, these celebrities are ruling the planet. And so I think with the type of photography that I do, and that is exactly what's happening on the album covers too, it's sort of a commentary on, on what's going on in the world. And I think that works very, very well in the context of an album cover. Marcus Klinko there, and you can keep up with his work at marcusklinkostudio.com. Now, for many of us, flicking through a box of 12-inch records is no longer how we encounter new music. We're more likely to be found clicking about on Spotify. And how has the design world accommodated that change? Does the album cover still hold sway, or has it been trumped by the moving image? Well, to think through some of these ideas, I was joined in the studio by Harry Butt, the creative director of Nexus Design Studio. He's previously designed for Tame Impala, Dua Lipa and Doja Cat, and is the former art director of the Time Dance record label. Harry, lovely to meet you. Thank you very much for coming in. Now, I'd like to ask you, first of all, about your process in the contemporary music making and art direction world. Do you get rung up by artists, by management, by labels, by PR companies? How does the ball start rolling in this current universe of art direction to to design an album cover or the promo around an album launch? I actually used to have, because I, I hated people having my mobile, I did actually put a landline in my studio so people could actually ring me up, but it didn't <laughs> ring that often. It was emails most of the time. I That's think, not like, to say you weren't in demand, it's just that people are shy <laughs> of the landline, aren't they? That's it. Also, no one knew the number, so it was a bit of a ghost phone. But yeah, <laughs> I think when you're first starting out, you kind of get a contact at a label, and um, they're the people that start feeding you bigger and bigger projects often like my stream of work was between like smaller independent labels and Mm -hmm. bigger major record labels with the major labels it was like the music that was coming out was quite fast paced in that there would be the release schedule of it the release schedule but also just 
yeah, every kind of schedule. Um, we were getting projects in that would be having to turn around really, really quickly, and it felt like there wasn't much care for it. Sometimes it was a bit disposable, but I think that was probably the level that I began at. In that it was sort of the the songs coming out, and we just need some visuals to tie it to. Okay, you can't release a song on social media. On an empty grey square, like you need something, and I felt like that the white was... label only goes so far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The white label with the with the rubber stamp, yeah, doesn't exist. But um, the process of designing with the smaller independent labels, I would always invite the artist to my studio, and we would talk for a really long time about mm. the influences and the inspirations, and feed that into the design process. Had a bit more time, had a bit less money, and was kind of a bit more enjoyable. But I began to notice it at towards like in the last few years that even the smaller labels wanted an animated version of it. They wanted something for Spotify. They have a canvas, which is this fifteen-second looping mm-hmm. thing that fills the screen. Um, and the problem with that was that the smaller labels are where you get to express yourself more artistically. But as soon as you hit play on the song, you get this fifteen-second full animation that covers any artwork that you put into the actual still image um so it kind of became a bit complicated the still image kind of began to take second place to moving animated content that's fascinating because i it plays into a question that i wanted to ask you i thought i was going to ask you and you teed it up immediately which is the difference between artwork creating artwork for an artist for a band uh, and creating promotional material for them. There's, I mean, we're, we're talking about hypnosis, legendary record sleeve designers on this show, um, but we're also sort of trying to look into the future a little bit. But it feels like those worlds of promo and those worlds and the, and the actual original album artwork are getting a little bit confused because of the design and the interface of some of the platforms that people are listening to music on or watching music on right now is that fair to say yeah totally i think so i think like if you were collecting uh singles or cds you wouldn't necessarily be looking at them in the same field of view but when you're on spotify you're seeing things collectively in one single visual take and because of that there's been this structure where you have one core concept which usually manifests in the album and then all the singles that come before that and after that are sort of teaser versions of that single concept. And so you kind of fill out this wide field of deliverables, which is like... <laughs> Harry's doing air quotes yeah, as well he might. it's my nightmare. <laughs> well, <laughs> no one likes deliverables. No one likes deliverables. And you kind of have this core concept that sort of trickles out and I sometimes dilutes down into all these various formats, banners and all these kind of things mostly digital content. Mm-hmm. But you might see the album once or never, but you'll see all the promo material a million times, which are mutated, lesser versions of that original concept. So it sometimes does get a bit lost. Are there sort of more promo things? So this, this for example, you've mentioned the Spotify canvas. That's a 15-second kind of revolving reel, isn't it? And that's got a separate, probably a, a, a somewhat separate identity and look and feel to the album artwork. But do you try to, or have you tried to, or have you seen examples of other art directors and designers trying to use the same visual language as the original album artwork, such as it is, in order to to have a kind of cogent, 
sort of mood board of of imagery and typefaces and vibe that you can pick up on if you're listening to you're scanning through an album's 12 tracks or whatever it might be or even if it's a sort of playlist scenario you can kind of remember what that song was by its imagery yeah do you know what i mean so it's stand out in a different way to an album cover might be yeah no it's true i i think like where where it falls a bit flat is where people try and build like a whole brand identity for an album or whatever i don't think it i think when people take it a bit seriously it becomes a bit empty mm. there's there was an amazing campaign done by a photographer for koji radical and that it was just a series of photographs that pulled out wider and wider and that approach of creating beautiful artworks in themselves which tied into the bigger thing as in a more elegant way mm. i felt was stronger but often what people can end up doing is taking a flat image trying to cut it out digitally say there's a photograph or illustration of a person they'll cut out the arms and move it in this sort of awkward puppetry way <laughs> and try and animate a still artwork and that because i'm an animator as well makes me feel really sad it's like a Frankenstein version of what should just always be a still, in my opinion. And going back to the sort of your understanding in 2023 of album artwork, are we kind of asking the wrong questions? I mean, we're kind of looking in the rearview mirror hypnosis on this on this show, Harry, but we're also trying to look forward. But are we kind of asking the wrong question? Has that ship kind of sailed? I mean, even huge selling records, maybe the I'm thinking in terms of, you know, everything from Adele, to sort of downward in terms of sales it's not often that the album covers are speaking to me or are hugely memorable even though it might be on the it might be the most played on everyone's spotify playlist it might be in various people's car if they still have a cd player in their car for example i wonder what you think about whether it's true to say that album covers generally are less memorable i don't know because i think the trajectory in the recent past and in the future is the album covers are static and then suddenly video exploded. Mm. And since then, we've come shorter and shorter and shorter as the attention spans are getting smaller or the perceived attention spans are getting smaller. And they're getting so short that maybe we'll come full circle back to just still images. People right. are scrolling at lightning speed. It's the image that might come back to rain again. That's what I hope. Yeah, well, I like, the, I like the idea of that because you do feel that. There's so much overload that one beautiful or startling or spare image of the artist or a thing might just be kind of what the doctor ordered in this kind of crazy overloaded world of world of kind of crowded imagery right i think so you would never catch the floating pig in the pink floyd animals if it was part of a moving image part of an animation Mm -hmm. those details are going to come back only when we move back to stills i think and personally harry what's when you're researching stuff, when you is it Instagram for you? Is it that way you're going to look at other art directors, photographers, animators, people that you might want to commission or collaborate with or whatever, or even artists who you've you've you know you've kind of have rung you up on your landline in your studio as previously discussed. Yeah, how are you checking stuff out? What's your experience in short of seeing album art and of seeing promo material? Is it is it is it Spotify's menu? Is it where where do you sit? Yeah, personally, I try to without sounding awful. I try to engage as little in staying up to date with the trends as possible. I've got this like my most prized possession is my like collection of books, my little library, 
my favorite artwork I made was inspired by some like Persian manuscripts. I think I'm not, I'm trying as hard as I can not to contribute to the noise. And if I know what the noise looks and exactly sounds like and feels like, I know that my brain will just kind of sort of sway into that. So it's almost like a detox to avoid it. But obviously, I love music. I listen to music. I'm engaging with like the music scene when I'm designing for it. Um, and the things that I'm picking up on are the things that when people start doing things differently. There's a label called AD93, who's famous for its mm-hmm. modern design. And they have always kind of approached design in an interesting way. They're the people I look to. It'll be individual labels who I have respect and love for. I try to stay away from the Spotify homepage. <laughs> well, it sounds like wise words from someone that's, uh, yeah, from someone with experience. I'm Harry Butt. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Cheers. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Anton Corbin, Marcus Klinko and Harry Butt. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. Thanks also to Mariella Bevan for her help editing this week's episode. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in. (laughs) 